Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Mentor, I'm Mark Boris. My guest today is someone who understands the game of being an entrepreneur. Yep, I guess to put it mildly, he's experienced the ultimate highs and the ultimate lows. Michael Fox co-founded a shoe business called Shoes of Prey back in 2008 when he was in a real big hurry to become an entrepreneur. Proposition was the industrialization of custom made shoes. So what did he do and convince everyone of this proposition? He raised $30 million in funding from some of the biggest, well-known, sophisticated investors in this country. And from anyone looking from the outside, it looked as though this little Aussie startup was riding the wave of success. But in 2019, shoes of prey hit the wall hard, was put in liquidation. And for one simple reason, his proposition, based on what he considered to be market research, was incorrect. It was wrong. The interesting thing about this podcast is how he addressed his investors. He then went off and set up a new business. This new business is called Fable Foods. And this is a mushroom-based plant alternative to meat. In other words, it's based on mushrooms. It tastes like meat. And what he's done, he's managed to raise funds to back this business from pretty much some of the same investors. It's a really interesting podcast about how you build relationships with investors and how you can go back to those investors with new propositions after you failed in the previous period and get them to reinvest again. So let's get into it. Michael Fox, welcome to The Mentor. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here. So what's a hat say? (laughs) Fable. Fable what? Uh, we're Fable Food Company. We make uh, delicious meaty food from mushrooms. Mushrooms, I like that. I mean, I've, but is that is that your actual company's hat, or it just happened to be a cap you found with Fable written on it? <laughs> no, this is our, this is our brand and logo. So it doesn't say Fable Foods. Um, yeah, the the cu- company technically is Fable Food Proprietary Limited, but we just sort of shorten it to Fable. Fable. Yeah, it's funny how that happens, and uh, why fable? Yeah, so it's a, it's a few different things. Um, the Oxford Dictionary defines a fable as a short story, usually involving animals as characters, um, conveying a moral. And um, our mission is to help end industrial animal agriculture. And not not that we go preaching morals or, or anything like that, but it, we when we thought of the name and read that definition, we thought it was a really nice fit with the. Uh, company's mission. Um, also, if you think back to like children's storybooks, you know, lots of kind of enchanted forests and 
mushrooms in the forest. So it had that kind of mushroom yeah, tie in. And, yeah, I like that. And we love the idea of, uh, of store brands and storytelling and Fable's obviously a story. So uh, that, that kind of ties in nicely. So, so we liked it from a, a few different angles. When I was reading the, the brief that um, I was given to me um, and now looking at you and I, I, I don't know why, but um, to me you characterise um, a serial entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah, that would uh, that's a good characterization. <laughs> yeah, let's just go back a bit. So I don't know what are you mid thirties? Uh, thirty nine. Thirty nine. There we go. That's close. Yep. And um, so let's go back. I don't know twenty years. What was Michael Fox apart from appearing in movies and stuff like that? <laughs> what was Michael Fox doing back then when he was twenty years of age? What was he thinking about? I was uh, at the University of Queensland studying commerce and law. Um, I probably hadn't quite clicked with me that um, I was an entrepreneur at heart at that point because um, I was doing internships at um, you know, PricewaterhouseCoopers and at um, commercial law firms and sort of thinking that something like that was probably my likely path. Um, but I think, it, I think it hadn't consciously clicked with me, but subconsciously it had. I was getting involved in all of the university clubs and societies and um, yeah, actually in hindsight doing a lot of entrepreneurial type activities. Well, what does that mean then? Like when you say at 20, it was 20 years ago and, and like, you know, the, the entrepreneurial world has changed. Entrepreneurs haven't changed, but the entrepreneurial world in terms of how to get express has changed in 20 years dramatically. Mm. So 20 years ago, university campus, what's our audience think Michael Fox is doing? Is he um, hanging out in a drama club or what's, what, what sort of clubs is he hanging out, hang, hanging out in? Uh, even more nerdy than that, I was president of the University of Queensland Law Society. Um, and But the entrepreneurial thing that we did uh, was we had this thing called the L card. So it was a card that students bought, um, paid $10 for, and it gave you discounts to all the local pubs and nightclubs and restaurants. Um, and we put together, we had this competition going between us and the Society of Economics and Commerce students on like who could put the best card together and get the most sales at O-Week. And in that, that year that I was president, we, we managed to put the best card together and we sold, uh, it was 15,000 cards. So we made $150,000 selling these cards in O-Week. Um, and that gave us money to hold all sorts of really fun parties for the year. For yourselves. Uh, yeah, yep. <laughs> and, and, and did you see that the competition or just the L card in itself as a way of raising funds, like funding? I mean, how, how did you look at it? Oh, fuck, this is going to be a great bit of fun, bit of crack, um, get into it, have a few drinks, we're going to lose, whatever. Or did you think of it and your, your cohorts think of it, this is a way of raising money. If we win, we're going to raise a whole lot of dough, which can allow us then to do all those things that our constitution allows us to do with the 150 grand. I mean, how, how did you think about those things in those days at 20 years of age? Yeah. Well, I was, I was social convener the, in my, the, the first year I got involved in the society. And so I was organizing all the parties, um, I wanted as much money as possible to, to make those parties really good and I wanted to get to know all the nightclubs and pubs in Brisbane so that we could host really awesome parties at all the best places. So it was kind of the perfect thing for me to do to kind of kick off the previous year or to finish up the previous year to get set, set up for the new year. Yeah, go out and meet all the pubs and clubs, get really good deals for them to go on the L card and then have a whole bunch of money for the, for the party. So that, that was my So you, you articulated goal. in your mind, you actually, that was your prescription. You yeah, were, yeah, yeah. Oh, this, yeah. this is what I want to fucking do. I want to get this, I want to get the dough up so we can actually go and do all the stuff that I have to do. I would have usually done as a social director, whatever the words were, um, you know, the sorts of things you need to do, you, you and your members need to do to, to sort of live your life out in that environment. But that's pretty mad for a 19, 20 year old. Not many people think like that at 19, 20. Um, 
where the hell does this sort of thought process come from? Is your parents? What's the deal? Parents, yeah. uncles, aunties just yeah. born that way? What, what are you telling me about? It's a good, it's a good question. And, and yeah, as I kind of said before, it hadn't even conscious, even doing that hadn't consciously formed in my mind that there was a career path, like an entrepreneurial type career path to actually taking that somewhere. So it was just, it wasn't a thing then anyway, to be honest. Well, no, it wasn't 20 years ago. You're right. Yeah. 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 I guess in, in hindsight, um, my grandma, um, she's, yeah, she's 94 and still alive. And she loves telling the story of when I was about probably three or four years old, um, there were the, she had this poinciana tree in her backyard and that would drop poinciana seeds on the ground, which would grow little, little smaller poinciana trees. And I sort of got this idea. Of, Otherwise known as seedlings. Yeah. Seedlings. That's okay. yeah, Thank you. Yeah. Mental block. Um, and yeah, I sort of had this idea or well, I started asking her questions like, Oh, could you, do people buy, um, seedlings to grow into trees? And she was like, yes. And I was like, Oh, would people want to buy poinciana seedlings? And she was like, Oh, I mean, maybe. And I said, oh, well, could we, yeah, could we grow some more seedlings and sell them? She was like, I mean, I suppose we could try. And I said, oh, could you, and I basically tried to delegate it all to her because I, I didn't live at her house. Yeah, could you collect all the seedlings, put them into pots and then sell them and, uh, and give me the money for, for doing that? So, so she kind of loves telling that story. And, and I, I guess that's, yeah, maybe it was built into me. Were you nurtured into this environment too by your parents? I mean, apart from <laughs> naturally having this in a natural sense, um, were you nurtured into this? Um, it's a good question. Not, not directly. Like my dad was a mining engineer. My mum was an accountant, so fairly kind of safe, regular jobs. But my dad, um, I think he always had the desire to be an entrepreneur. Like he would often talk about, you know, he was, he was a quite a senior exec at, um, like BHP for a lot of years. So, but he would talk about, uh, different entrepreneurial ideas. If we would go on an overseas holiday, He'd see some interesting things going on in the US and would talk about, oh, this could be really cool to bring back to Australia. And I think he sort of toyed with the idea of quitting his job and becoming an entrepreneur, but, but he never did. Um, and so it's possible that that kind of, yeah, hard to say, but it's possible that that kind of sort of stuck in my mind. Yeah. So take me from university, what did you go, where'd you work after that? Yeah, so I, I did what any good law student does and goes and works at a big commercial law firm. Um, and I really disliked it. Like two, two months in, I knew that this is not what I wanted to do career wise. Um, and I would, I would find myself, I'd finish up the day, I'd get the train home, uh, and, and, and I'd be reading the business review weekly was kind of the, the publication at the time. Yeah. 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 I think you, you were mentioned it it quite a lot back then. Those days. Um, and I'd be, I'd be reading the BRW and reading about all these different interesting businesses. And when I'd come back into work the next day, I w- I'd just completely forgotten what I was working on the day before. And so if I hadn't written down the next steps on everything that I was doing, like, cause my brain just wasn't in it. Like I just wasn't passionate about um, working as a lawyer, but I was passionate about what was all the different things people were doing in the business view weekly. So um, that's sort of, that's when it sort of started to click. And that was probably only a couple of months in being a lawyer. It started to click that, Oh, maybe I need to go and explore the, this business world that I didn't really have any concept of un- until then. Um, and I ended up getting a, a, talking to Bob Thorne, who was the CEO of Super Cheap Auto at the time. Um, and they were setting up a graduate program. So I went and did two years at Super Cheap Auto on a graduate program. So at the time they had about 300 stores. They were, they were just launching BCF, Boating, Camping, Fishing. Um, and it was quite an entrepreneurial organization. You know, they're probably doing somewhere around three or 400 million revenue. Um, and I really fell in love with kind of retail and uh, yeah. And that gave me a, you know, in, still in a bigger company, but gave me a sense of what that sort of entrepreneurial you feel it, might you, be like. Actual retail, like 
Yeah, yeah. So I did a did a graduate program. So I did everything from working in the sourcing team, uh, the supply chain team, working in the warehouse, managed a store over Christmas, uh, worked in HR, finance, kind of in all the different departments in the business and got a good overview of what goes on in a retail business. Um, I ended up settling in that they were working on um, a third business at the time, Gold Cross Cycles, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and I wanted to get on that team. There were only two people on it because um, I wanted to start work on a new business. Um, but yeah, they couldn't afford to put a third person on it. So I ended up in like a merchandising analyst role, which was yeah back to being kind of more like a lawyer, um, just, just, just dealing with data all day. And I didn't really enjoy that. Uh, ended up then going to Google for two and a half years um, in a sale, advertising sales role. And that was back, I think I started at Google in 07. Um, so it's pretty small, relatively new in Australia. Um, and it was just the, the easiest product to sell at the time because people were getting a really good return on investment on their on their ad spend. You know, it's much more much more competitive now that the Google auctions. Um, but at the time, yeah, that was a, it was a really fun space to be in. And that gave me an introduction to the tech world because, you know, Google had been a sort of Silicon Valley tech startup um, a few years before, but was starting to get bigger. At, um, you stopped there for a second. Yeah, yeah. So like just as talk about that for a second, because I, that would have been, Google's a bit different today mm. if you work there, yep. especially here in Sydney, for example. It's a bit more, it's a made-it company. You know, yep. like it's a bit more normal, so to speak. But then it would have been pretty out there. Yeah. Um, maybe just explain the, everyone's an entrepreneur there. Everybody who was working there was an entrepreneur, wanted to be an entrepreneur. What's the culture that you got from that? Yeah. So it was very much, when I joined, there were about a hundred people in the Sydney office. I think today there's like two or 3000. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very different today, much more sort of corporate today. But back then it was, uh, you know, the office had opened maybe 18 months before I joined. So it was kind of very new in Australia. Um, and with that came a yeah very strong entrepreneurial culture. So the people who were lead, who, Kate Vale was the first employee um, there. She was like an incredible salesperson, great kind of mentor of people and yeah, culturally like just awesome fun. Like the yeah, really, really fun, ex- like parties and different things that were going on. It was a very sort of young, yeah, young kind of party culture. Um, uh, work-wise, it was fantastic because the product was just genuinely so good. The advertising product, um, anyone who signed up to it got amazing return on investment on their ad spend. And, you know, we were growing at three or four, times every year um, for the two and a half years that I was there. So it was, you know, smashing all the sales targets and uh, all those kind of fun things that make for an exciting workplace. Um, And it was fun to be in a kind of new disruptive space. You know, it was, we were disrupting newspapers and uh, the yellow pages and all those traditional advertising models. Um, And yeah, with a product that was genuinely much better than, than everything else that was on. How would you describe the mindset of those people though? Like, I mean, sure, they, they dress differently when they come to work compared to, say, what you would have had at the law firm. Yeah. Um, what, what's the characteristics of these individuals? Like, are they loose or are they um, um, scatter in that they're not really fixed on one thing and they're all over the shop? How is it? Or are they focused? What's it look like? Yeah, I'd say um, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I think that the word loose that you described, I think is a, is a pretty good one. Mm. Um, I think the kind of people that succeeded at Google in that time were, yeah, just like absolute gung ho go getters who would just get in and get shit done, try lots of different things. Cause pretty much anything we tried as a sales team worked. So the more things that we did, the more sales we made. And, um, and, and yes, yeah, so it was really people who, who were, yeah, 
open to trying new ideas and just really good at getting shit done as opposed to I imagine today like you need in, in a more mature market you need people who are more structured and strategic in their thinking you need a thousand agreements yeah yeah to yeah. get to anywhere yeah right right exactly and probably yeah. the same Google too today yeah it'd be the same you yep. know because there's yep. so many steps you got to take because I mean I, I guess good grounding for you I mean like mm. in terms of timing um, you couldn't sort of pick that because like you, you didn't know when you're coming out of university and working in law firm that Google's going to come to town and it's going to have a hundred employees. You're going to be, end up becoming one of them in that the best time to be involved for me to be involved in Google, um, you know, at its really initial stage where you really do get to learn that sense of entrepreneurialism, real entrepreneurialism, not just someone sitting in my business, but real stuff, taking real risks. But you also then were writing this great J curve too. Like, you know, it's, you can, it's kicking up hard. Yep. It's off the back of that. I guess with all those experiences, um, do you mind if we talk about birds of prey? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so, how do we get into that? Yeah, so um, uh, why so, did you think birds of prey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after uh, all this stuff, shoes of prey, shoes of prey. Sorry, play, but play shoes of prey. Birds of prey. That happens all well, the time. Shoes of prey, I should say. <laughs> prey tell. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. But birds of prey. I'm sorry. Shoes of prey because yeah. like shoes of prey was looks like your first opportunity to rip into doing something on your own. Mm. Is that right? Yep. 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 First, first proper go at it. Yeah. yeah proper go. So yeah. why did you think you should do that? Yeah. So I, th- I think by, uh, I, I really loved my first, I was, I was at Google for two and a half years. I really loved the first 18 months. Um, but then the kind of global financial crisis hit Google kind of like a lot of companies did the smart thing and battened down the hatches. And so a lot of the like opportunities to go work in overseas offices um, disappeared. They brought in like a, mu- a much more structured promotional path. So you had to be in a role for a minimum of two years before you could get promoted. They brought in more layers. So my boss was like five rungs ahead of me on the ladder. Um, so at best it was going to take me 10 years to get to the level that my boss was at. And they just brought the, the culture kind of changed a little bit over that period. But you and- did the maths. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, this was at the time the best place to work in the world. And, yeah, there were just all these kind of cultural things that were sort of changing and tightening up. And smart move by Google as a company, but for someone uh, like me who was very entrepreneurial and loved that sort of, yeah, more loose, in, uh, gung-ho in, environment, um, it, yeah, I wasn't enjoying and it ent- Entrepreneurs too are in a hurry. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. They don't have enough time. Exactly, yeah. I don't want to sit there for two you, years. You can't, you can't. Thing. Um, no, so, no. so you did what? So then I was started thinking, well, okay, if this is the best place in the world to work and I'm not like thoroughly satisfied here, um, the only thing I can do is to go and create a company myself and create the culture that, that I want to work in. So, so did that come first, did it? Uh, yeah, that came first. Before the idea. Before what the you idea, did. yep. And would, that, would you say that's a mistake? Yeah, in hindsight, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so because, so, I mean, this is important. I want to par- parlay into something, but like yeah. Yeah. sometimes the entrepreneur's character which is what I was trying to get to before to some extent is um, entrepreneurs get a great deal of fun out of being an entrepreneur. They mm. get excitement. I mean, yep. there's, a, there's a, it's like a drug. Yep. It, it's very exciting. Mm. And um, whether it gets expressed as spending 150000 with all your mates in your club at the pub as a result of winning the L thing or whether or not it's just getting the fuck out of somewhere which is going to take you 10 years to get to where your boss's position is, which, by the way, is not where you want to end up anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, you're always in a hurry, not you, but all of us. I've, I've mm. been through this too. We're in a hurry. And generally speaking, when we're in a hurry, we don't make great judgments, I don't think. Mm. Yep. 
So you're in a hurry to get out and in a hurry to set up. Yep. Build yep. your own culture. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So tell me, take me through, because I mean, this is um, for a lot of people, a lot of younger people listening to this sort of stuff. This is important, and and you, no doubt, you would have backed yourself too. Yeah. 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 No, these are really good, good questions. Um, yeah, I wanted to go in and yeah, wanted to be an entrepreneur. That was the first thought prior to actually thinking about what the product was and what I was passionate about and what I wanted to do, what kind of company I wanted to build. It was more being an entrepreneur and building a culture. So that came first shoes of prey for me um so yeah then it was thinking through we took a very kind of structured approach i say we so there was a, a, another friend of mine who had gone through law school with um who was also at google as a software engineer um a guy mike knapp uh, and then my wife at the time jody um the three of us had kind of been experimenting with a few just sort of startup ideas um and so we started brainstorming okay well we want to go and start something together we took a very logical structured approach we looked at okay, well, what are our skill sets? Um, and for me, it was well, retail. I'd spent a couple of years at Super Cheap Auto. Um, between Mike and I, we'd been at Google for a few years, so the kind of tech online space. Um, and then Jody had been a lawyer as well and then at a, a branding agency. Um, so we kind of had this skill set of like retail online and building a brand. And so we looked at that and uh, this was- but No product. No product yet. So that was the late 2000s. So we're like, oh, well, maybe online retail would be a good space to be in. Um, it's very early stage in Australia, online retail in those days and, and was much further ahead in the UK and US and uh, other international markets. So we're like, okay, we want to do an online retail business. Um, then Amazon was kind of really taking off then. So our thought was, well, we don't want to, we want to get into a category that where we're not going to be competing with Amazon. So we want to do something very differentiated. Um, then started thinking about product ideas. Jody had been, whenever she would do holidays to Europe, she'd book stopovers in Hong Kong. There were little stores there where you could design your own shoes. And she'd come back from those trips wearing all these kind of amazing different shoes. And lots of her friends would ask her, where'd you get those shoes? And she's like, oh, I designed them myself and kind of created this really interesting conversation. Um, and they would ask her to design shoes for them. So we figured, okay, yeah, all these thoughts were swelling through our mind, online retail, design your own shoes. That's very differentiated. Um, yeah, why don't we have a go at doing that online? So that's kind of where the idea came from. What would you say, I mean, cause you know, like a lot of young entrepreneurs or young people could be working in law firms now thinking about they want to have a hustle, side hustle, or alternatively they want to, they want to get out of the law firm or the accounting firm, wherever it is that they are working. And I want to be an entrepreneur. Um, what would you say to them about that, like that thought process? Yeah. It's, it's in a logical sense, it's, a, it's sort of a necessary thought process or feeling, but it's not sufficient. Yep. What would you say to them? Yeah. So it was a big lesson I learned through the Shoes of Prey journey and applied uh, later on, which I'm sure we'll get into. But yeah, I think in hindsight, I did that backwards. So what I should have done uh, was think about, okay, what are the th what are the things I'm passionate about in life? What What's my mission and vision? What do I want to achieve in life? Um, and uh, And explore those areas for where there might be business opportunities. Because I think the mistake for me with Shoes of Prey was I definitely wasn't passionate about women's shoes or fashion. Someone else was. It was someone else's thing. Jody was. Um, and, and so we did have that within the co-founding team. Um, so, so that side of it was good. But I kind of naturally fell into the CEO role. And then so for me is the, to have the CEO of the business not really have that in-depth understanding and passion for the product and the category. There's ways to solve for that, um, but it made it much harder 
Um, and, you know, I enjoyed lots of parts of the business, you know, like you said, being an entrepreneur and, you know, it's exciting and fast paced and things are always changing. You've got a steep learning curve. So I enjoyed all of those aspects and I enjoyed the manufacturing and supply chain, building a brand, but the core product itself and the category that we're, the fashion category that we're in just weren't, you know, I wouldn't wake up on a Saturday morning reading fashion magazines. Um, and so I don't think I had the really in-depth understanding of the customer, how the customer thought. Um, and I, think in hindsight yeah those are it certainly makes it less fun when you don't have the passion for the product and i think makes it a step harder to succeed and i think also too probably you don't understand the customer's needs or what the customer wants because that's not a thing that you're thinking about all the time and if you don't understand women's fashion and women's shoes and what women want in relation to the shoes and how far they'll go to get the thing they want or how far they won't go probably more importantly um what they won't do um, what their expectations are, it's very difficult for you as a leader of the business, as CEO of the business anyway, to make something like that work. I don't think. I, don't, I think it's virtually impossible. Yep. You know, you've got to – you raise money though. Yep. <laughs> How the hell would you fucking raise money for that? I mean, <laughs> this is what you're good at. That's why you're running the social club and that's why you were the in charge of the Law Society of Queensland or whatever it was. <laughs> I mean, you're good at raising dough. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, you, you second nature to you. Yeah. You raise money for shoes of prey. Yep. How'd you do that? Initially, first two and a half years, we kind of grew the business just out of its own cash flow. Had to run a pretty tight ship to do that. Um, but we hit this point where we were doing about sort of 2 million a year in revenue and we're doing well in these niches of women who are very passionate about designing uh, like wedding shoes. Um, and, and we also did well in a niche of extended sizes. But we had all these other customers coming to the website and not buying. Um, and so we did some you know focus groups and surveys and things. And what we realized was, that we had like 10,000 mass market fashion customers a day coming to the website, designing shoes, but not purchasing. Um, and so we asked them, why are you not buying? And, and what they tell us was, well, look, we love the idea of designing our own shoes. That's why we're on the website, but we want faster lead times. Uh, we want a simplified shoe design experience and we don't want to pay the 30% premium you're charging for designing uh, for, the, for the same quality shoes. So we looked at those three things and we realized, well, we can deliver this value proposition that this mass market customer is telling us that she wants, um, but we're going to go and need to build our own shoe factory uh, to be able to produce the shoes because our um, we were outsourcing the manufacturing initially and our supplier wasn't going to be able to speed up the delivery times. At the time when we launched, we were at about five weeks delivery. The mass market customer wanted sub two weeks and we needed to develop the processes to make shoes one at a time really efficiently to bring our costs down and not charge the premium. And then we would need to hire more software engineers and user experience people to simplify the money. shoe design experience. And that all needs money, exactly. So there's a long answer to your question, but we realized we needed money to do these things and that if we were able to deliver the, on those things, deliver the value proposition for that mass market customer, in theory, there was going to be a huge business opportunity here because we had all of these customers coming to the website um, interested in what we were doing. So that was basically the story that we took to, that we believed and that we took out to investors. Um, first round of funding that we raised was in 2010, early 2011. Um, and then we used that funding to yeah, go and build a shoe factory in China and hire software engineers and user experience people to simplify the shoe design experience. And yeah, we ended up raising four rounds of funding as we, as we executed on that plan. How much you raise altogether? Uh, $35 million. $35 million. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Lee, this, this kills me, but I mean, I get people on my show who can't raise a half million dollars. Um, you all got a business selling shoes that people design themselves. 
and you can raise $35 million just straight after the GFC, like 2010, 2011. That's fucking unbelievable. Like, uh, you've you got a gift. Yeah, thanks. And what do you think it is? I mean, I think in that case it was uh, – in for Shoes of Prey, I mean, it was, it was $3 million in the first round, $2 million, uh, $7.5 million, then about $20 million in the last round. So it was over – over kind of a five-year period. It doesn't matter. It's a gift. Like fucking yeah. $35 million. Yeah. Not listed. Private company selling shoes. Like one small – it's a small thing. Yeah. Great respect. Like you're selling shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like you're going to take the whole world on. Yeah. I think in that in that venture capital space anyway, what the what the investors are looking for is um, you know, th- their, their model is they'll invest in 100 companies in one of their funds and it's like three or four businesses will – is where they make all of their money. So they're looking for companies yeah. that – will turn into multi-billion dollar yep. businesses. Um, and so what we were building with Shoes of Prey to raise money from venture capital firms needed to align with with that. And our story was, and what we believed we were, we were and what we we're aiming to build was, yeah, not just doing, you know, custom women's shoes and a custom women's shoe business, but we were trying to revolutionize the fashion industry. And if you, if you look at the fashion industry, the supply and demand model's the wrong way around. You've got um, fashion designers trying to predict uh, and forecast trends and you know, long, long lead times because products are made in Asia. So they're designing and producing products 12 to 18 months in advance of them hitting the market. Simplifying it, they, they might decide, okay, we're going to produce 10,000 pairs of blue shoes for this season and 5,000 pairs of red shoes for the season. And by the time the season comes around, the market's shifted and um, they've the, the 10,000 pairs of blue shoes, they only sell 6,000. So the other 4,000 they've got to put on sale at the end of the season and they lose all their margin. Um, and then the 5,000 pairs of red shoes that they produced, actually red shoes have gone off this season and they could have sold 15,000 pairs, but, but they've, they've underproduced, so they've lost sales. Um, and that also produced a whole bunch of waste in the industry because you've got people then buying all these discounted blue shoes that they don't really need. They're just buying them because they're on sale. And so our vision was to flip that model and do a just-in-time uh, model for the fashion industry where the customer would actually then t- tell you what they wanted to create. You'd produce it and deliver it to the customer very quickly. Uh, you never lost uh, out on sales that, uh, it, that there was consumer demand for. You could deliver on all of that consumer demand. Um, and then on, that's cash flow cycle was beautiful as well because customers were designing shoes, paying us up front. We would then manufacture the shoes and and you know had payment terms with all of our suppliers, so we actually had a positive cash flow cycle. So your proposition business. was very attractive. Your proposition was very seductive. Your proposition was we're going to industrialize custom-made shoes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah but yeah. That, and then not just but shoes. But you weren't doing gonna, it. You weren't actually doing it. I mean, it, you, I mean, you were doing it to to a small extent. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. But you weren't. You weren't definitely weren't on an industrial scale, and you raised all this money on the basis that the proposition was probably far greater than the reality it ended up becoming that way correct and and i think you made a really important point um these funders these investors sophisticated investors private equity groups um are looking for uh, three successes out of every 10 or 20 um and they to a large extent they back people now whilst you may not have been passionate about the the shoes themselves as you know, as your you know, great agenda in life, probably one of the things I, I would suspect, and I'm, I'm 100% sure this is the case, you would have been passionate. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. 
absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Schmidt raising the dough. And those... Investors invest in you. They invest in Michael Fox. Mm. Yep, true. Yeah, true. You, yeah. And you knew that, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Partic- you, particularly in those early rounds of you, you just knew it. Very much that. Yeah, you, yeah. you knew that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's I'm not I'm not being accusing you. You just you fucking knew mm. what these guys want to do. You yeah, you yeah. you read them yeah. either in the room or before that, or you done enough research, or you just genetically knew about it. That I can raise that dough mm. if my proposition's strong enough, yeah, yeah. and if I can be convincing. And this is something that a lot of these people out there trying to raise money, they have great ideas, but they they just no good at raising fucking money. Mm-hmm. You're just good at raising money, yeah. not just good at raising, but you are good at raising money. Yeah, you yeah. understood that market probably better than you understood the customer <laughs> market who true. actually buys the shoes. That's very true. True. Yeah, yeah very true. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, uh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, and uh, you know that, and the idea didn't. Probably didn't work. Well, why didn't the idea work? What happened? Yeah, yeah. So basically we got that that market research wrong. So when I was saying before that we had like 10,000 women a day coming to our website, we talked to them. They told us they wanted faster lead times, um, a simplified shoe design experience and didn't want to pay the premium f- for designing their shoes. Um, that's what the customer consciously thought she wanted. That's what she told us in our surveys, in our focus groups, in all our customer interviews. Um, so that's the value proposition we went out and built. Um when we've delivered that value proposition and to, to do that required all the capital and took sort of five years to build our own factory, simplify the shoe design experience, everything else. Um, we delivered the value proposition and we grew from before raising money, we were doing about 2 million a year revenue. Um, over five years, we'd grown to about 12 million a year, a year revenue. So we'd grown, but nowhere near enough. We needed to be, you know, we should have been, if the value proposition resonated, we should have been a hundred million a year business at that point. And we needed to be at 25, 30 million to break even to cover all our fixed costs because we now had a factory and, and all these software engineers. And when we watched consumers shopping on our website, what we realized was consciously that mass market fashion customer thinks she wants to customize. If you ask her, do you want to design your own shoes? She's like, oh my God, that's amazing. I'd love to design my own shoes. And she'll tell you that that's what she wants to do because she thinks she wants to do that. Um, but deep down subconsciously, she doesn't want to design her own shoes. <laughs> she, she doesn't have the time to do it and she actually re- doesn't really have the confidence to do it. She, she really wants to see what's popular in fashion magazines or what's popular in inst- on Instagram and buy not only that design but even that brand. And that, that's actually the antithesis of designing your own shoes. She really wants to be told what so to do. The opposite to wear. of your proposition was the case. Yeah, exactly. Well, what, that, yeah. and I'll, just before I go, I want to ask you this question. Like, it, um, does that say to our audience then, in terms of doing your research, don't trust folks groups or, or your surveys? I think uh, it, to an extent, yeah, or don't rely on them as much as we did. Um, I think the optimal, in my experience, the optimal way to do consumer research is to actually watch consumer behavior. And then do focus groups and interviews to understand what you've seen 
So the problem with Shoes of Prey was we couldn't watch consumer behavior because no one had built this value proposition before. Um, and it was only when we built the value proposition, we watched consumer behavior. We could see they're designing shoes. They're not buying. They're kind of designing 20 pairs of shoes. And they, so they love it. They're spending hours on the site. They're designing 20 pairs of shoes, but they're not buying one. Why? We couldn't ask them directly because they consciously thought they wanted to design. But once we could watch consumer behavior, we could ask better questions based on what we'd seen them do and we could draw out of them um, what was preventing them buying. And that's when we realized we've built the complete wrong value proposition. This is not what the customer wants. Well, we're going to get a break. I'm going to come back from the break. I want to ask you, uh, you know, the big question. What just, how did you deal with your investors? I mean, like, and what did you tell them? I mean, how do you go back to your investors cap in hand and say, we fucked up? You know, because the company went in liquidation, didn't it, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yep. so that was the end of the section. So I really want to find that out because that's – it's not enough. I, I, I think it, everyone makes mistakes. We learn. What's really important is that we've got to learn how to deal with that mistake. And you obviously have learned how to do that because you went back to your investors. You must have done something to them because you've obviously been able to keep hold of investors who have now invested in your new, your new business. And we're going to talk about – Fable Foods in, after the break, but I want to know, and I want you to tell our audience, what did you do straight after that? I mean, and how important is it to manage investor expectations? Mm-hmm. Let's go to the break and we'll come straight back. Back from the break, I'm here with Mike Fox. He runs a business, his business called Fable Foods. But we're talking about another business, which, which is really important. It's called Shoes of Prey. It didn't go so well. It, it, let's call it a failure. Um, but he did a lot of things in there where he learned what not to do in relation to his next business. So I think it's important for our audience to hear these things. We just found out that the business proposition wasn't correct based on probably some learnings from how not to do or how not to do your research around the product. Probably also wanting to be an entrepreneur before you actually have the idea and the product properly mapped out. Mm-hmm. But he raised a whole lot of dough. Investors are going to get told the bad news. So what happened? Yeah. So um I remember calling uh some of our bigger investors. So um I remember specifically a conversation with Rick Baker from Blackbird Ventures and and actually had the the same call that same night with Mike Cannon Brooks um, from Atlassian, who was an early investor as well, and called them. Would both you line them all up in a room? What happens? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I basically had to. The, one of the things that helped the conversation was they'd been on the journey over the over that. So that's important. Period. Explain yeah. how you manage your shareholder or investor expectations during intervivo, like whilst you're there. Yeah, I, I mean, early on when they'd first invested, um, Rick and Mike would. Uh, I think Rick was on, on the board for a while. Mike would come to a lot of our board meetings, so have a call with them, you know, maybe once a quarter or, or once a half um, to update them on what was going on. So they were very much bought into the strategy. You know, we'd talk them through, here's the market research we've done, here's the vision, here's what we think we can create, here's what we're going to execute on. And we got a lot of the execution right. Like we went and built a shoe factory in, in southeastern China that made custom shoes. Uh, we got it, the delivery times down to 11 days from when you ordered a pair of shoes anywhere in the world to when you received them. Um, we built a good brand and did, 
did a partnership with David Jones in Australia where you could design shoes on iPads in the stores, uh, then rolled out a similar thing with Nordstrom in the US. Those investors had been on that journey. They they saw that the reason we failed was we got that got that market research wrong. So that having kept them up to date certainly made those calls easier, but it's still never easy to call somebody and tell them, um, hey, we're yeah, not going to be you able to- You dusted your dough. Yeah, 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 exactly. We're not going to be able to, we're not, not only we're not going to give you return on your money, but um, yeah, we, we, we can't find a buyer for the assets. We're going to have to put the company into liquidation and um, we're not going to even be able to return, yeah, not, not even a cent so in what, the dollar. What do you, I mean, how do you talk to those people? Do you like, do you get them all in the room once? Or do you have a, like a big conference call or do you go and see them one-on-one? Uh, pretty much all one-to-one conversations with them. Like those are, those are pretty important conversations to, to have with people. So I kind of wanted to do those one-to-one with people. The, um, those specific calls with Rick Baker and Mike Cannon-Brooks, I remember well, cause the first thing that both of them said to me was, um, how are you going? How's the team going? Um, you know, are you guys okay? We often hear people have discussions about, um, especially in the Valley, investors wanting to know that you sort of have failed or been close to failure at some stage in your life, in your business life. It's sort of nearly a colloquialism, to be frank with you. But most people don't really know what it means and they definitely haven't experienced it. What is it that is attractive about that characteristic of having failed? Mm. And, and by the way, I don't, the word failure is a bit unfair to use because it sounds really final. Yeah, I mean, I mean if it... I guess it depends how you define it, but we, I mean, we did fail in our mission to revolutionize the fashion industry and to deliver a return for shareholders, which is kind of why the company exists. So, so uh, yeah, in that sense, we, we definitely did fail. Um, I think the, but the, not necessarily an intellectual failure. No. Or no, an I mean, effort I, failure. No, right, right. No. So yeah, yeah, I think that's yeah, what people yeah, need to understand yeah. because a lot of people are scared of failing and they do nothing. Yeah. yeah. See, for me, I mean, one way I would explain, cause I've been through the same processes is that I would explain this as, in your, your case, as market failure mm. as opposed to personal failure. Yeah. So you did all the things you said you would do personally, you executed, um, but there was a, a market failure. Now, you're responsible for the market failure because yep. you misread the market, but I don't think these investors expect you to – that's one of the reasons they come in as a venture capitalist because they're investing in your venture, they're backing your um, – your ability to execute, which you did. But if there's a market failure in the beginning, that's just as much a problem as theirs as, as it is yours to me. Mm. They equally had a market failure because they backed you. Mm. And you, you don't know any better about the market than they do. You might have done the research, presented them research, but they looked at the same research that you had. So you were a um, part of the market failure. And uh, that happens all the time. Sometimes we can pivot or sort of slightly change it. We just can get there. Um, but in your case, you, you weren't able to do that, mm. you know, like yep. the, because you weren't going to be able to raise any more money. Mm. I mean, exactly. you were not from, not for this particular venture, yep. you know, like some other ventures you can, but personal failure is a different thing. Um, and I think personal failure sort of sticks with you much longer and it makes it much harder to deal with people in the future. But market failure is probably excusable and acceptable. Would you think that's a fair assumption or a fair assessment of it all? Yeah, I think that's um, – I haven't heard, quite heard it articulated like that. I think that's actually a really good way to think about it. And, and, and you know, it wasn't like we'd stolen the money and run off with it yeah, like, yeah. A, like a Christopher's case or something like that. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah, you're right. It wasn't a personal failure. It was a 
Yeah, it was a market failure. We we have exactly we misread the market. We got our market research wrong. Um, and that's but that's the risk they take. Failure, but in that's that, the risk that's they what take. venture capitalists yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. They are they are risking potential yeah. market failure. Yeah. So I think that if you're, and I want to talk about your next venture, but I think that if you're trying to raise money, the thing you need to concentrate on when you are presenting your pitch, so to speak, to your investors, potential investors, is you've got to convince them that. At a personal level, you know how to execute, but you also need to ex- explain to them the risk associated with potential market failure and, and or market success. So if you're trying to raise money, just get clear in your mind what are the personal outcomes that you need to execute on and then what does the market need to execute for you? That's the part you don't control. There's something you control over here. There's something you don't control over here. They're two really important things. So, I mean, I, I, I want to jump straight into your next venture, Fable Foods. Is there an ethical thing here about um, animals and um, that type of thing, using animals for food? Yeah. So For you? Yeah, yeah. So I've been vegetarian now for five and a half years. Um, for me, that's – Was that after you didn't want to take any more leather from any more cows yeah, and yeah. cow hides to make shoes that well, weren't going to sell? I, uh, yeah, it was a, and this was a real interesting personal journey for me doing Shoes of Prey too because uh, I went vegetarian – like I was still doing Shoes of Prey. Um, was living How the in, fuck do you do that if you've got, a, if you've got leather? You've yeah. Got leather, I presume leather. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, the – Snake skins and crocodile skins and every other thing probably. Exactly, yeah. So uh, that was a real uh, – I. I I managed to get a around it in my mind. Yeah, but it, yeah, it was a mind fuck. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Um, so, so yeah, I'd gone vegetarian about five and a half years ago. I was doing shoes of prey. It wasn't anything more than a personal thing for me. It was ethical, environmental, and health reasons in that order. But all three of them uh, were, were fundamental reasons why I went vegetarian. Um, and, and and I'm pretty close to being pretty vegan. good. Fucking start for a new business, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No thanks. They yeah, pertain yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, finished up with Shoes of Prey. Uh, it's nearly three years ago now. Kind of needed a break after the after you know laying off 200 people, all those investor calls, not returning money. Um, you know, probably had a mild dose of PTSD in 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 hindsight. So, and just found myself constantly being drawn to like reading more about industrial animal agriculture. Um, and just got more and more passionate about the idea of wanting to help contribute to ending that. I'd been eating, living in Los Angeles, eating the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger and could see that all those people I was chatting to, trying to convert them to being vegetarian, they found it hard to convert to being vegetarian because they love the taste and texture of meat, but um, they, were, they wanted to reduce their meat consumption. Um, and so if you could make it easier for them to do that by producing delicious meaty food but just make it out of something other than animals they were open to to doing that realize that yeah that that sort of uh, meat alternative space or producing foods that can substitute in instead of meat was a was a way to uh help people reduce their meat consumption help end in, and therefore help in industrial animal agriculture um and where somewhere where i could use my entrepreneurial skills to create a product that would um that that would fit there um, so a lot of the meat alternatives on the market are produced from textured vegetable protein and, um, and, and they, it, they're, they're quite healthy products, but um, they're probably not, and they're not as healthy as eating just sort of a, nat- a, natural, a natural kind of whole food vegetable. There's a bit of processing that goes on in making them. And I, and I eat them. If I'm out at a fast food burger restaurant, I'll, I'll eat a Beyond Burger or all those products. I, I think they're great. Um, but I wanted to produce something that was like 
really close to kind of healthy whole food, no artificial ingredients, um, all natural uh, product. Not processed. And not processed. Not over-processed. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, yep, yep. So I went and talked to a whole bunch of chefs and food scientists and food manufacturers and some chefs put me onto the idea of potentially using mushrooms as a base ingredient. Um, mushrooms are very healthy and good for you. Um, they have a lot of those natural meaty umami flavors in them. Um, and so then I started exploring the mushroom space uh, and then through that met my um, co-founders. So yeah, Jim Fuller, he grew up in Texas, fine dining chef for uh, 12 years, wanted to understand the science behind what he was cooking. So he went and studied chemical engineering and agricultural science, uh, majored in mycology, which is mushroom science. And then he's worked as a mycologist for the last decade. Uh, and then Chris McLaughlin co-founded Australia's largest organic mushroom farm, um, was 2018 Australian Organic Farmer of the Year. So Chris and Jim have this really strong technical background in mushrooms. So we caught up in sort of mid-2019, realized we had the same objectives, similar passions, uh, and very complementary skill sets. They had the technical skills. I had the kind of entrepreneurial business background. So yeah, we joined forces to- Why did they join with you? Why did they join with you though? I mean, because like, you know, if they had, they, they could do, they could do without you, so to speak. Do you talk them into it or <laughs> Did you say, listen, dudes, come with me. I'm going to take you to where we need to go. Yeah, I, th- I think um, I think they were. Yeah, they're, they're obviously very strong technically, and I think they had enough understanding um, of the way business worked to realize that their skill set wasn't necessarily in yeah fundraising and sales and business development and scaling a business and all of those. But other did you things. convince them? Yeah, 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 and it, it took some work because um, you know they went and looked me up about shoes of prey. Shoes of prey had failed, um, and so. Yeah, it took some work to kind of talk through, I guess I talked through exact similar conversation to what you and I have had now, what the reasons for why Shoes of Prey had failed. Um, I'd been talking to um, Blackbird Ventures and Grok Ventures, which is Mike Cannon-Brooks's family office, um, about the whole uh, kind of mushroom-based meat alternative space. It was actually, we probably had about five people introduce, introduce us um, as co-founders, but uh, one of them was... Uh, Lucinda Hankin, who who works in Mike Cannonbrooks's family office, so she introduced us and suggested, "Hey, you guys are wanting to do similar things. You've got complementary skill sets. Uh, you should meet up." And so I think for Chris and Jim, having the introduction from someone whose money I'd lost in Shoes of Prey helped. was a yeah helped them. Well, how the fuck did you keep that? Rel- I mean, like, how does that work? Like, that that's pretty unusual, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like like you described, right? It, it wasn't a personal you put it well it wasn't a personal failure it was a market failure um they could see that i'd learnt those lessons and so they were interested in whatever i would from their perspective yeah what's he going to do next where's the business at where is fable foods right now yeah so the first product we developed we kind of spent all of 2019 developing it is um uh, we call it meaty pulled mushrooms and it's got a, a texture and a taste very close to like a pulled pork or a braised beef those kind of Slow cooked meats that Jim grew up on in in Texas. It's it's already cooked. Uh, yeah, it's already. You cooked. just heat it up. Yeah, you can add some barbecue sauce, put it on a burger, or put it in some tacos with some Mexican spices. Or sounds awesome. You'd use those slow cooked meats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we we're developing the product in 2019. We set ourselves the goal of okay, if we can get a really good chef wanting to use the product, then we know we've kind of got the development to a point where we're ready to launch. Um, Jim had met Heston Blumenthal, the British chef, a few years earlier when Heston had been exploring uh, the mushroom space. Um, they'd gone on really well. So so sort of towards the end of 2019, we um, sent, took some product, met up with Heston in Singapore, took some product to him, showed it to him. He tried it, absolutely loved it, um, and ended up being our first customer, started using it in his UK restaurants. 
Um, we also had our first scaled customer in December 2019, um, which is Marley Spoon, the, the meal kit yep. company. It's been on my um, podcast. Oh, there you go. Yep. Cool. And they've been a really good good partner. So they were our first kind of scaled partner. So you can get the product is and the it's the mushroom meat that's on on their on their menu every every second week. Um, and and that was actually when we raised we raised our first round of funding. We had a purchase order from Marley Spoon for about a hundred thousand dollar about a hundred thousand dollar order. Um, and that's when we went and raised the funding. And how much did you need to raise to get that hundred thousand dollar order out? Um, so we we initially set out to raise uh, just a couple of hundred grand to f- kind of fund working capital and a few other costs, uh, opex costs. Um, it ended up turning into a one point seven million dollar round, um, which oversubscribed, yeah, which, yeah, which Blackbird and Grok co led. So they put in half a million each, and then we ended up with some other food industry um, angel investors coming in. Can I just stop you there for a second, Michael? This is really important. How important is it to other angel investors when someone like Ken Brooks and Blackbird stump up for a million? Yeah, hugely important. Um, Those lead investors are the ones that you negotiate all the terms with, negotiate the valuation with, um, and and we could have just raised the million dollars from them. That was more than we needed. So then for the other angel investors, it's like, well, okay, we know what the terms are. Company's already got enough money, you know. I'll, I'll chuck in fifty or hundred grand. Yes, and it's it, it's unbelievably yeah. important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you yeah. just get those that one anchor into those two anchors in, yeah. everyone else for the fifty hundred thousand dollar investors, they yeah. just go. They jump on. We're in. I'm on. Yeah, because yep. I mean, I do it myself. I know yep. people who invest in things. Yeah, big investors, and if they say, "Oh, Mark, you want to invest?" and I say, "Have oh, you done the work?" I've done the work. Okay, he's a hundred. Yeah, whatever. I mean, I do it all the time. Yeah, we all the time. Yeah, because yep. we just expect. And I say, well, "Who else is investing?" Yeah, and I look at like there might be another six people I know, you sort of get confident. It's a bit of a yeah. momentum thing. Yeah, yeah it exactly. works. Very much so. We've got yeah, no fucking yeah. idea was going to be any yeah. good or not. But, <laughs> but, but we just sort There's of – other smart people it, think it will. So. That's, <laughs> sometimes we're all thinking the same thing, but none of us have actually had a look at it. But So you, you raised 1.7, you got your, your first orders away. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Yep. So that was December 2019 we launched. Um, then 2020, our strategy was to roll out into food service. Uh, COVID obviously threw a spanner in the works there. We've probably worked for you though in the yeah, end. Yeah, well, in the end, we were, yeah, we were lucky we'd launched into Marley Spoon, so their volumes picked up and that more than made up what we'd lost um, in, with the restaurant rollout. But, yeah, and we sped up our retail launch as well. So by the end of, 20, of, the end of last year, we were in, and fast forward to today, we're in uh, Marley Spoon. We just launched into HelloFresh, so they're the number one and two meal kit companies in Australia. Um, we're in Coles and Woolworths. And actually we launched into Harris Farm first. Um, so you raised 1.7. Have you raised yeah. anything since? We're closing out another round of funding at the moment. Yeah, right. So, so you're, you're you're trying to raise more money. This is your second. This is your second raise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you call it courage that uh, you have to raise money, and especially given the fact that you you know the shoes are parading you so well? I mean, is it what is it? Courage, or is it just um, com- com- complete conviction to the commitment you have in relation to the new business you have? Where do you get this guts from? Uh, I mean, I think it's this time around, it's the mission of wanting to help end industrial animal agriculture. Um, so it's complete conviction yeah, to your commitment. Yeah, 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 very much so. And and I don't think I'd be back being an entrepreneur again if it wasn't for that um, conviction and that mission. So therefore yeah. it doesn't really matter anything else. It doesn't matter whether you did badly before. It doesn't matter whether you might have you might get a, a knockback. So I might say no. Mm. If you have complete conviction in the thing you're trying to raise the money for, then it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. It's yep. not courage then. Yep. It's just yep. conviction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, very, very much Would so. Would that be right? No, yeah, that's that's exactly right. Because a lot of yeah. people think, oh, I haven't got the guts to do it. Well, yeah, but that means you're not completely yep. committed to the thing you need to raise the money for. Yeah, exactly. That's my feeling. Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe you're yep. just not quite um, – 
you're not engaged enough. You're not married into the system yeah. of what it is you're trying to raise a dough for. Yeah. I mean, I know with me, like, you know, I, you know, I, I believe in helping people buy a home. Um, mm. Therefore, for me to raise money, um, whether I'm raising money at the wholesale markets or I'm raising money into the Yellow Big Road business, to help me make sure that people can afford to buy their own home and I can offer an interest rates better and cheaper than everybody else, um, I have to actually believe in the thing I'm trying to do and I'm completely committed to people being able to own their own home. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that's exactly right. Um, and it's, it's, and investors are looking for that kind of conviction because you know, investors know that starting a business is hard. You're going to go through some horrendous lows where things are not going right and they want to see that you've got the, you're not going to quit. Well, how much more do you reckon you are better equipped at 39 than you were when you were, say, 29 to <laughs> run the business and raise money and turn it into something important? Because often people often say to me, oh, you know, like I'm nearly 40 and I haven't done – I say, fuck, 40's, 40 to 50 is your best period. Mm. You're, you're young enough to have the energy to still do it, mm. like at, at a pace, yep. massive pace but you're old enough and experienced enough to not to make too many mistakes and be actually not to be in a hurry, yep. which is where you were when you kicked off your, your first venture. Um, you're in a hurry. Hmm. You want to be an entrepreneur. Hmm. So you know, and you now you know the difference. Do you reckon you're in your sweet spot in terms of age now too? Yeah, I mean, it certainly feels that way and, yeah, I, yeah. and I hope that's right. Time will and tell. But yeah, yeah, yeah and, that, and that's, that is great to hear that. Yeah, in your experience, that forty to fifty year period is a is a really sweet spot because I'm just about to about to hit that. So yeah, I certainly. I, I think I certainly that's right. right. Yeah, I, yeah, I do think. Yeah, I don't know about women because I mean, I'm not a woman, but I can talk from a man's point of view. Um, forty to fifty is, I think, is a really high performance optimum period for us. Mm. Um, I mean, it, there's a lot of assumptions around that, of course, but generally speaking, I think it's a good good period to feel like you can actually achieve something big because you've got, you need not even need the experience and skill, but not be at a, not be at in a hurry, but you also have the energy to go, go, go to the speed that the market requires you to go to. It's a big deal. I think. Yeah. I think you, I think you're spot on. Right. And, and I think your point around, if I compare myself at 39 now to 29, like, the amount of lessons, like hard-earned lessons that I, I've, I've gained over the last 10 years. And if I reflect, uh, is, is enormous. And if I reflect on, you know, we're, we're in month, I think, 15 or 16 of, of having launched uh, Fable, um, you know, the revenue run rate that we're at now is, you know, it took us about six years in Shoes of Prey to get to that same level. Um, and we're, yeah, we're just, the amount of mistake I reflect on the amount of mistakes I made in those first kind of I mean the whole way through Shoes of Prey, but the first five years of Shoes of Prey, I think we've been able to compress five or six years of of finding product market fit and starting to scale into the first twelve months of Fable just because I'd done all of those things before. It's e easier and faster. Yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah I mean, if I, I mean, I often say to my own sons, I got I got a, I got a, a mantra I live by, um, and it, it goes like this: It's a uh, work. You got to work hard. I don't give a fuck what you're doing. You got to. You, I'm sure you're working really hard. Play. You got to give yourself. You got to have some fun, particularly if you can have fun at the thing you're doing. Yeah. So work and play, but try to make the play part of what you work. I mean, part of your work, because then it's just much more efficient in terms of time. Work plays, and the the next the next two words are fight and love. So fight for what's worth fighting for, and don't fight for something and or pick a fight. 
unless it's something that's worth fighting for. So in your case, you've got something worth fighting for. Um, and love. You've got to love what you're doing. You know, like love it with all your heart. You've got to nurture it and fucking want it to, to succeed. You've got to love it to completely. And the final one is belief. Um, you've got to believe in it. And if you, live, if you have those five things in your life, whether it's in your business or just generally in your life, then you'll be somewhat replete. You'll be happy yep. enough. Yep. Happy enough. And uh, it seems to me that uh, the feeling I'm getting from you is those five things exist. And the gap feeling I'm getting from you is you're happy enough. Mm. Uh, I'm, I wrote money a- will come to you yeah. because the laws of attraction apply. If someone can get themselves in that state of mind, the laws of attraction apply. Here's a good example of someone who's been through the rough and tumble, but those five things apply. Didn't believe in the, the shoes. I, I'm no. sorry, but you didn't believe in them. No, I didn't. No. No. You didn't believe in it. Hmm. So it, there's a, an important ingredient missing. Yep. And with that, with that, the laws of attraction apply. Yep. So hundred percent agree. I think that that's, that's an amazing kind of mantra. I think those five things. One are, of my sons has got a tattoo on his arm. Those, oh, really? those five things. Yeah. <laughs> he ta- I, Cause every time I used to go, when I used to work in India, James Packer and I had a bit of business in India and I used to go every six weeks and went for years. And um, every time I used to get on a plane, my kids were only little in those days. All my sons, I raised my sons myself to live with me. As I got on the plane, I would send them a text, those five things. Just, I just, that was a, I could thought myself, it happened to be on an airplane. They're the last things I want my kids to remember. Because to me, they are the, the five, not a photo of me or anything, they're the five most important things that I'd gained in my life to make you what I call happy enough. Not happy. Or happier, just happy enough. I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. Mike, I normally give everyone an opportunity to ask me a question. Have you got a question for me? Yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Like with so with going back to shoes of prey, the thing that we failed on was uh, market research. Um, I've, or the interpretation of the market research. Yeah, yep, yep. And uh, I've been applying those lessons at Fable, and hopefully getting it right with Fable. Um, I'd love to hear. For you in in your businesses, how do you, how did you develop the hypotheses on on what value proposition you needed to deliver to disrupt home loans and and financial advice, and then how did you do the market research and test whether your assumptions? I was were lucky. Right? I was a consumer, customer, um, and I needed to borrow some money. My business partner and I we needed to borrow some money to do, do it, to do a development. Nobody would lend us the money. But we had to settle and we didn't have the funds. We'd already paid the deposit, but we'd had a long settlement. But it came up when the time came to settle, we're getting like desperate. And we met these broker guys. Someone referred us to these broker guys, and these broker guys got got the deal settled, got the deal approved by the bank, et cetera. And um and I, I thought I couldn't believe it. And they were so efficient. So I went and spoke to them and I said to them, Look, I understand how capital markets work. That is, I understand how to get funding into your hands because I have, I have a master's degree in capital markets. So I understand how that works. I can get funding into your hands, but I don't really understand how customers are. I don't know what the fuck they want. What, I don't know what the product looks like. The mortgage product looks like. Mm-hmm. I don't know what interest rate to charge. I don't know what the features are. And they, but you do because the four of you have been dealing with as mortgage brokers with customers at that stage for 10 years. I said, so, why don't I, they own a business. I said, why don't I buy 40% of your business? I'll, I'll fund your business and you give me 40% of the business in return. And I'll make sure we get, then I'll make sure we get the capital market money to lend to customers and you go find the customers. 
And uh, so my market research was zero because I had four guys who had instinctive market research and experiential market research by having dealt with mortgage customers for the last 10 years and every single mortgage product in the market. Then I, I knew what the products were, what the features were, what the pricing was, they told me. And then all, all we did was shape the capital market money. So we get a billion dollars of the capital market and I just repackage it into price and feature and product that these guys told me the market wanted. I always gave customers the product they wanted. I never said, here's the product, you have to have that no matter what and I'll approve it. No, I know, for example, that you might have been a customer of mine, you might have had not done your tax returns, but I'm, you might have um, had an accountant who could sign off. So those things we started preparing were called non-conforming notes, non-conforming loans. Didn't exist in the market before we, Aussie and Wizard came along, but we started to build products for those types of borrowers because those borrowers are always assessed as being not a good borrower, but they actually were a good borrower. They were in a business. Last thing they want to do is your house to get that, lose the house because if they lost the house, they usually lost the business as well. So they were good customers. We just had to understand what it was, getting a letter from the accountant. The accountant would say, yes, this particular customer can afford the loan because he or she has been earning $100,000 a year for the last five years. Um, we haven't lodged a tax returns, but here, I have done the accounts. Mm. And over time, we went from four mortgage brokers to about 2,000 mortgage brokers, and 2,000 mortgage brokers fed back me the market information. Today, Yellow Brick Road, we've got, uh, you know, probably close to 2,500 people across the country. They feed me the information today and tell me what it is the product's got to look like, features, price, et cetera. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, that's good. Uh, and, you, you, yeah, I've just bought my first house, had to get a non-conforming loan because I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah, so there you I've go. Been you know what I'm exactly talking about. Exactly what you've described. And we, we developed those. those yeah, that product right. did yeah. not exist in the banking system. Yeah, yeah. Banks do them now, but yeah. they did not, uh, yeah. did not exist and we – Develop those products for people just like you. Thanks. Very nice to meet you. Awesome story. I'm so glad you're up. And uh, my gut feeling is you're nearly through the post. That's my gut feeling is just going to be upwards. I I think you're on a good thing. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it. Great chatting to you. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley. And production assistants, Jonathan Leondis. 